Yes, yes, yes. Check your watch. It's that time again. I'm back, and we're definitely going to do some great college football talk to wrap up the season. It's been incredible. Clemson dominated Bama. That was totally unexpected, but we're going to get into that. NFL wildcard weekend is over. There's been some uh, coaching hires that I definitely want to discuss, and I was amazed with some of the games. On the NBA front, is Paul George really having the best season of his career? We'll deep dive into the numbers and find that out. We worried about the Warriors, but it looks like they're back. Maybe we shouldn't have never been worried at all. All that and a lot more coming at you. So sit back, relax, and listen up to episode 11 of The Format. Probably a very unexpected or maybe even anticlimactic end to the college football season. Other than Dabo Swinney and his men, who could have possibly expected the result we saw last night in the college football playoff championship game? The Clemson Tigers stunned, beat down, and humiliated Nick Saban in the Alabama Crimson Tide 44-16. That was the first time in Nick Saban's tenure as Alabama Crimson Tide head football coach that a team led by him has ever lost by more than 14 points. That's a score that usually looks that way in an Alabama game, except it's normally going in Bama's favor. The Tigers outsped, outhit, outblocked, out-executed, and out-everythinged Alabama en route to steamrolling them for the national title. Now, before I go on about this game, let me quickly put in an aside here. Um, as a diehard Notre Dame Fighting Irish fan, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that Notre Dame was obviously beaten by Clemson, the eventual champ, in the semifinal 30-3. And after that game, a lot of people had a lot to say about Notre Dame not deserving to be there based on how badly they got beaten. 27-point beatdown, almost a shutout. Um, they put to the side what Notre Dame had done all season to earn their spot in the playoff, so be it. So Notre Dame gets smoked by Clemson by 27. They don't deserve to be there. Alabama got smoked by Clemson by 28. How come I don't hear anything about them not deserving to be there? Just something to think about. All I ask for, people, is consistency. But anyway, it's really amazing when you look at Clemson here. Dabo Swinney and Brent Venables, the defensive coordinator, have really built a program which in every way can match Alabama, and clearly they do. They do it on the field. Like, you look at Georgia. Kirby Smart has built his program in every way to match Alabama, except... They just can't get the wins against them when it counts most, right? So if you look at Clemson, over the last four years of this recruiting class, the Tigers are 55-2 and two over the last four years against teams other than Alabama. The other four games, they've split with Bama 2-2, two and two, four times they've met them in the playoff. 
that's insane. The two times they have beat them, they beat them for national championships. The first time they beat them for a national championship, it took Deshaun Watson playing out of his mind and having, I'm not going to call it a miracle throw, but a super clutch play at the end of the game, throwing for a touchdown, I think with one second left to Hunter Renfro to win that one in an all-time classic championship game. Um, yesterday, last night, excuse me, Trevor Lawrence, the true freshman quarterback, and that uh, Clemson defense just basically took apart Alabama and absolutely smoked them. There was no doubt about it. Didn't come down to a last second or any of that, right? So what I have to say about that is, first of all, it was an amazing performance. Uh, give Clemson all the credit. Um, I don't think this is so much about Alabama not showing up or not playing well. This is about Clemson absolutely giving them that work. And now that Urban Meyer's retired, well, if you ask me honestly, I believe it's more like a temporary hiatus until the next big job he's interested in comes up. But now that he has quote-unquote retired, clearly Dabo Sweeney's got to be the second-best coach in college football. Some probably would argue the best uh, based on what he's been able to do in terms of building the program, turning it into uh, this level of program, consistently making the playoffs and winning the championship two out of four years. But um, I think just based on uh, lifetime uh, achievement uh, in the college football game, you probably still got to get the nod to Nick Saban. But again, I don't think that's as clear cut as most people would say. I would not necessarily argue, but I think Urban Meyer should be in the argument. Uh, 20 game win streaks at three different schools and three national championships. By the way, that 20 game win streak at three different schools is something I really hold on to. That's never been done by anyone else. And it just shows his ability to build a program. And pretty much before Urban Meyer, uh, Utah was not, they weren't the program that they are today. They're still uh, not quite you know, a top tier program, but, you know, they might be lower second tier nationally, but they were a lot lower than that before Urban Meyer got there. At any rate, this is not Urban Meyer's day. This is about uh, Clemson and Dabo Sweeney. Again, congratulations. You guys did a tremendous job. And I think it should be clear that he's the second best, if not the best coach in college football. Watching that game, it, it was just crazy to see that Alabama had 16 points at halftime and were completely shut out in the second. From the time they scored their 16th point, Clemson scored them, outscored them 30 to nothing throughout the rest of the game. And, you know, that's inconceivable when you look at a Saban coach team, when you look at an Alabama team. I guess it just goes to show that they're not invincible. Uh, you know, it, it was like, uh, if you're old enough to remember Rocky Four. Um, when Rocky hit him in the second round and, and he cut Ivan Drago on the eye and his manager goes, he's cut, he's cut, you see? He's not a machine, he's a man, he's a man. Well, there you go, you're seeing now, Alabama, theoretically they're a college football machine, but you get the general premise, you know, they're men, they're men, they can be beaten. You know, if you line up and you execute and you have the athletes to compete, you can beat them, so, you know, this is very interesting. I really want to kind of see what it's looking like in the future in terms of long-term sustained success for Clemson. Are they going to be able to carry this on kind of in the way that uh, Saban and 
Alabama have been able to carry on their dynasty for about 10 years now. This is going to be really interesting. You know, the recruits are going to keep coming to both of them. You know, their powerhouses. Uh, I think Vegas already has um, Clemson as the odds-on favorite to win the championship again next year. Again, you know, we'll wait and see. But uh, this is this is really good stuff. Um, on the sad side, that's the end of the college football season. If you're a big college football fan like I am, now we have, you know, almost nine long months to wait before the season starts again. We've seen some coaching moves. Dana Holgerson leaving West Virginia and going to Houston. If you're not aware, Houston has a quarterback. Before he got injured to end the season, Derek King had 36 passing touchdowns and 14 rushing touchdowns for a total of 50 combined touchdowns on the season and he missed the last two games to go along with 64% completions. Uh, The kid is a real playmaker. Houston uh, has a very solid defense, even though they'll be losing uh, star defensive tackle Ed Oliver to the NFL. They really have an opportunity to be very good. They have games um, at Oklahoma and I believe at Washington State, uh, both top 10 teams this past season. Those are wins that, if they can pull them out, would really probably not get them there, but catapult them firmly into the discussion for a college football playoff berth, at the very least, a New Year's Six Bowl. Obviously, they will have to run the table to be able to do that, and that's an entirely different story, but Holgerson is looking at uh, a great opportunity. A lot of people are wondering why he would have stepped down from Big 12 to group of five but it seems um it makes a lot of sense in certain ways obviously we know houston paid him and then secondly there's a lot more talent he's going to be able to recruit coaching for houston in that state of texas uh a&m texas oklahoma baylor tech those schools can't get them all right there's a lot of talent in the houston area um so he's definitely going to be able to have some really quality players he's going to have opportunities with big games he got paid he's got a great quarterback and you look at it at west virginia he was losing will greer uh they had the top defensive player in the big 12 conference i think he's gone as well and star wide receiver sills is going to be gone so you lose a lot of talent and even with that talent you couldn't overcome oklahoma to win your conference you couldn't even get in the conference championship game so uh there's a lot of positives to dana holgerson stepping down with the mountaineers and going over to the cougars it's going to be uh, a pretty good watch going into the season another big change in college football is obviously as i mentioned earlier the stepping away of urban meyer from head coach of ohio state and uh that job being taken over by uh former offensive coordinator ryan day that should be I think there's a lot of talent there. Urban absolutely didn't leave the the cupboard bare, so I don't think you have to worry about a huge drop-off in terms of playmakers. But at the same time, when you look at now not having a coach of his caliber on the sideline or in any official capacity with the program, I mean, I'm sure Ryan Day will be able to reach out to him. But having uh, not having Urban there to run the day-to-day to... Uh, really be as involved as he has been in the past, you have to assume uh, a level of drop-off there at at the program. It's definitely probably going to open the door for Michigan 
Um, if they can't win the Big Ten and beat their rival now, then they never will. Obviously, it won't be the same as beating Urban Meyer for Jim Harbaugh, but hey, a win is a win, especially against your rival, and especially if it can put you in a position to win your conference and then hopefully make the playoff, which is, you know, pretty much what he was brought there to do. So that's another that's another big one, and um, not sure how it'll play out, but I think we can fairly assume that Michigan probably has to be the favorite in the uh, Big um, Ten. Also, I think another reverberation of Urban Meyer stepping down is how will Ohio State's recruiting continue? We know that Urban Meyer is one of the best recruiters in the business of college football. Yes, I said the business of college football, but um, we don't know necessarily what it's going to be in terms of being able to recruit those talented players without him there. Uh, We know that uh, clearly he had uh, deep Uh, recruiting roots in the South from his time at Florida. So we're not sure whether they're still going to be able to pull those type of guys to head up to the cold and and play in Columbus. Um, Yeah, I think uh, definitely um, wait and see, maybe a year or two, depending on, uh, you know, what type of recruits come in. And then once uh, all Urban Meyer's classes run out, then we will see what type of uh, ability Ryan Day has, if he's still the head coach at that time, to be able to reload for the Buckeyes. Finally, one of the other big storylines for me, not necessarily in terms of a coach moving or, well, maybe we don't know yet, but there are rumors that NFL teams, uh, namely Tampa Bay Buccaneers, are looking at Brian Kelly and uh, possibly offering him $10 million a year to come down and coach their program. Um I'm not sure how they see that as an upgrade. It's definitely a change, but I don't know how they see that as an upgrade in terms of a professional coach. Number one, he doesn't have any professional experience as a coach or as a coordinator, so not sure how that would work. Not exactly sure how well his uh, spread system would mesh with the pro game. Yes, we know that there's a whole lot more spread in college and high school, even concepts being utilized in the pro game, but he was spread all the time and in the pros you can't run that all the time you know we we see teams running it as much as 60 uh percent of the time maybe a little more but you can't run the spread all the time so i'm not sure how necessarily Jameis winston who the bucks have put their arms around as their quarterback going forward um would fit in in that spread system we'll see uh Also, from the collegiate side of things, if you're Notre Dame and he decides to go and get that money and chase the NFL dream, well, that's great for him. But the next question is, who do you get to replace him? Uh, Not a lot of the elite coaches are clamoring to be a head coach at Notre Dame. It's no longer a glamour job for a college football head coach, especially in wake of the relatively unique academic circumstances that are uh, in play at that university, which can, I'm not going to say handcuff, but have a very different dynamic in terms of recruiting as opposed to your Clemsons, your Alabamas, and and some of these other power schools. So uh, if you know the Dame, who do you look at? First of all, who is available as an elite head coach? And secondly, who, again, would want to take on the challenge of playing, uh, excuse me, of coaching and having to recruit under those uh, situations, which I guess ideally can be called restrictions. It's an interesting thing to think about. It's something that really 
I'm just unsure of. And, uh, you know, again, as a Notre Dame fan, I can only hope that Brian Kelly does not decide to move on, but he may have reached his uh, ceiling. He's done a great job rebuilding the program in terms of getting better athletes. I've discussed this previously and um, getting them to a position where they can make the college football playoff. There's just, you know, one uh, final hurdle now. It's getting to the point where we can make the college football playoff and win those type of games that they're in instead of, uh, you know, being blown out. So, it's we'll find out got some real good nfl stuff here let's get right into it so there's some interesting coaching changes going on in the league some i like some i don't but um i'll get into that a little bit later just to give a wrap up here on the uh, wild card round Andrew Luck, this guy's really something else. He just continues his amazing comeback season, leading the Colts to a road win in Houston. For me, this game was just as much about the Colts as it was the Texans, and I'll explain why. But first, uh, Frank Reich, he's really done an amazing job just coaching his team up and helping them achieve the level of success that they've had so far. Andrew Luck, throughout his career, has been one of the most hit-and-sacked quarterbacks in the league. Part of that is, or should I say was, holding on to the ball way too long, trying to make big plays downfield, and a complete lack of a run game offensively. Also, the offensive line was just flat-out bad. Nowhere else to say it. They were just bad. The O-line, in part, was helped in a big way with the draft of uh, Quentin Nelson. I think he was number six overall out of the University of Notre Dame last year. And he ended up being first-team All-Pro. He has just been a road grader in the uh, in the run and uh, pass offense for the Colts. Another big part of the uh, uh, turnaround for this team was the real emergence of second-year running back Marlon Mack, who rushed for over 900 yards in just 12 games. And as we know, having a great running game can be a friend to any quarterback. Finally, I think the third part of that successful trifecta was Frank Reich changing the offensive scheme to have Andrew Luck get a lot of quick throws to get the ball out of his hands faster and negate what pass rush did get through on a much improved offensive line. If Luck's not just standing back there holding it, scanning downfield, looking to make a big play, you know, there's a lot less time for for defenders to get to him and put him in uh, possible situations to get hurt or just get sacked and, and lose a lot of yardage. He really just had an incredible bounce back season with 39 touchdowns and just under 4,600 yards passing. After not playing for almost two years, that's, that's really incredible if you think about it. On the flip side of the coin in that game, though, what's the deal with the Texans? I, I just don't know what to make of this team. They're really disappointing. This is a team that is just way too talented to keep failing in the postseason like this. Um, the quarterback situation looks to be in great hands for years to come in Deshaun Watson. We saw flashes of that as a rookie before he got injured, and he had another solid season this year. Nothing to really blow your socks off, but a, a good solid season, and he's just going to get better with time. We know there's elite production at the wide receiver spot in DeAndre Hopkins, one of the best in the league, and... When Will Fuller V is healthy and on the field, he is another dangerous, explosive downfield threat. Now, 
as they say, availability is your best ability. And he, throughout his short career thus far, seems to rarely be available. But when he's out there, he makes a tremendous compliment in the passing game to DeAndre Hopkins and just another weapon for Deshaun Watson. So he's got to manage to get healthy and stay on the field. On the defensive unit, we know all about that side of the ball. They're great. They have playmakers on every level. Wide and Clowney up front, tremendous pass rushers. Uh, Whitney Merciless at linebacker. Uh, Jonathan Joseph, Honey Badger, Teron Matthew in the defensive backfield. On every level of the defense, they have playmakers. With all of that, they still got handled relatively easily 27, excuse me, 21 to 7 in the wild card round. This just doesn't make sense. It's not adding up. If you ask me, the problem here is Bill O'Brien. Now, what I'm going to say may not be popular in NFL circles. Maybe some will agree with it quietly, but I'm going to say it. Bill O'Brien is overrated. I mean, that's all there is to it. Of course, he comes out of the Belichick tree. So the the thought is that he's going to be a good coach when, honestly, if you look at the Belichick tree, for the most part, his former subordinates that went on to head coaching jobs have not been successful. I think that Belichick is just so outstanding in his own right that it's almost impossible to uh, replicate that in your own environment as a head coach. You're not going to be able to pick that up throughout osmosis. He is who he is. He is what he is. But putting Belichick to the side, I really do believe Bill O'Brien is overrated. I get it. Winning in the NFL is hard. But this offensive guru, QB whisperer tag that he's got, it's just not true. And the evidence is there. He's not a bad coach, but this talented is way this team is way too talented to have a 42 and 38 record over his time there. It's just not good enough. The team, unfortunately, though, they're not bad enough to fire him, but something needs to happen. At some point, uh, they're going to have to go ahead and make a change because there's enough talent on this roster. The division is not terribly difficult to navigate. They just need to be better. Even when they make the playoffs, they're out quickly. They need to be better, plain and simple. The next big thing, probably the biggest thing for me as I watched the wild card round, was that Ravens-Chargers game. I think that was the second time in three weeks the Ravens and Chargers played. And clearly, uh, having seen Lamar Jackson up close and personal in losing to the Ravens in San Diego, uh, defensively, the Chargers, made, excuse me, in Los Angeles, I keep saying San Diego, um, in Los Angeles, the Chargers made a major adjustment that really helped to negate the Baltimore running game and, in fact, really control Lamar Jackson. Now, I said a while back uh, on my podcast that uh, in the NFL, in the playoffs, coaches are known for taking away what you do best. Lamar Jackson can throw the ball. He has shown improvement over time during the course of his eight starts, but he's not a consistent thrower uh, with pace and touch. We know that he's not ready to, you know, actively attack NFL defenses through the air. We know that. What's making him dangerous at this point is his athleticism and ability to really uh, run the football and put pressure on defenses in a way you don't often see at the NFL level, right? So, fine. Um, But we knew coming in, San Diego was a very good team, offensively and defensively. I said it again. The Chargers, the L.A. Chargers, were a very good team uh, offensively, 
and defensively with a lot of good personnel. And what we saw was the adjustment where for most of the game, the Chargers had seven defensive backs in the game in order to be able to deal with Lamar Jackson's speed if he got out of the pocket. As well, they were able to get pressure with their front four. So you combine being able to get pressure with your front four and at the same time, having the speed in the defensive secondary to be able to control Jackson if he should get out. And that made for a very dangerous combination, which really stifled the Ravens' run game. Now, the Ravens' defense did all they could to, to keep them in this game and give them an opportunity to win. You know, I uh, think they ended up losing 23-17. Uh, to 17. Now, Lamar Jackson was bad. I mean, bad through three quarters. Had a couple of good-looking touchdown drives in the fourth, but the Chargers had kind of taken their foot off the gas defensively at that point. So, yes, those were good drives and good experience for him, but I, I don't... I don't give a whole lot of credence to what I saw in the fourth quarter. Now, here's my biggest takeaway from that game. We've been hearing... You know, throughout the week from uh, various media outlets, etc., that they feel John Harbaugh did the absolute correct thing by not benching Lamar Jackson and putting in Joe Flacco. If you remember, I said a while ago, weeks ago, when Lamar Jackson took this job over, that if the Ravens get to the playoffs, if it's me... I like Joe Flacco to be my guy because we know what he's able to do in a conventional fashion, NFL-wise, in terms of reading a defense, making the throws downfield, and doing what it takes to be done to win uh, playoff games in the NFL, right? And I didn't think Lamar Jackson was ready for that. Now, I get it. Lamar Jackson took you winning uh, six of your last seven to win the division and get into the playoffs. It would have been impossible as a head coach to say, hey, this is our guy. He played a huge role in getting us here to win the division, get into the playoffs, get a home game in the first round. But I'm benching him and putting back in Flacco. I get it. That would not have sat well with the team. That said, for me, uh, as a coach, what I would have done is watching that game, seeing where they were at the half, I would have pulled Lamar and put in Joe Flacco because I really believe that Joe Flacco would have put the team in better position to win. Now, as I'm watching this game, I'm sitting there and I'm saying that I feel like the Ravens were not at all interested in winning that game when it got to that point. And I'm saying, why would you not be willing to do what it takes to win a playoff game? But then I see that they didn't want to mortgage the future and ignite a possible quarterback controversy going forward for the sake of winning one game and maybe just maybe making a run right you look at Flacco if the Ravens had won they would have gone on to play in New England for uh that next game and we know that Flacco has no fear of Brady in New England, nor does that Ravens defense. They've beat him twice in New England in the playoffs. Flacco has battled uh, Brady throw for throw, and they would have beaten him a third time if not for a, a terrible call on a um, Lee Evans drop in the end zone, as well as a, a Billy Cundiff missed field goal, which turned out to be good because that got him cut from the team, and we ended up getting Justin Tucker, who's the best kicker in NFL history statistically. Um, with all of that, it occurred to me that the Ravens had no interest in actually attempting to win that game. They would rather have lost with Lamar than one with Joe Flacco and uh, starting a quarterback controversy that may not have been able to be quelled, especially if the Ravens had gone on to make a run. 
So I get it. I just don't agree with it. I would have tried to win and figure all that out down the road. But that's why I'm sitting here talking to you and why I'm not an NFL head coach or executive. So uh, the next big game was uh, Philadelphia-Chicago. And that was a heck of a matchup. Uh, Putting another great defense um, against another hot team in uh, uh, Nick Foles and the Eagles going up against that Bears defense at Soldier Field. Now, this is a game that definitely could have gone either way. Um, Chicago losing on a very late kick after uh, Eagles coach Doug Peterson iced the kicker with a timeout. He would have made that first kick. He did make the first kick, but the timeout came just in time to ice him. And then uh, the second kick was was tipped at the line, and then it it uh, it hit the upright, and then the crossbar for a miss, and that ended a great uh, season by the Chicago Bears. Now, in terms of the Bears. I think we're really going to see just what Matt Nagy has as a coach next year. Um, he's going to have another offseason with QB Mitch Trubisky, Mitchell Trubisky in order to attempt to make that offense uh, better. And um, he's going to have that great defense again. But the real test is after winning the division, he's going to have a first place schedule. Uh, they're going to have a healthy Aaron Rodgers in division. Not exactly sure what the Packers will be with new head coach Matt LaFleur, but we'll talk about him just a little bit later. Uh, it should be very interesting to see what Matt Nagy can do with the Chicago Bears next season. But for me, uh, the biggest thing about that game was the Nick Foles ride continues. Any GM you talk to in the NFL, most head coaches you talk to in the NFL, uh, most NFL pundits are going to tell you Carson Wentz is better than Nick Foles. Bigger, stronger, more athletic, bigger arm, able to make more improvisational plays, more wild plays. Get all that. But for the second straight year, Nick Foles has the Eagles on a run. Uh, He's got them playing extremely well following the Carson Wentz injury, got them into the playoffs by winning out. They did get a little help, but got them into the playoffs by winning out. They won their first game against a top uh, two defense, number one, depending on what metric you want to use, but a top two NFL defense that had kind of gotten back to what the Chicago Bears do, and that is play absolutely menacing defense. And, um, you know, this was a road game, probably not one that the Eagles should have won, but here they are again, uh, Doug Peterson making great calls where it counts most, Nick Foles making uh, big plays and big throws. And so I'm watching that and I'm thinking, okay, six weeks ago, Carson Wentz and the Eagles went down to New Orleans and got absolutely ramrodded. They got smoked. I believe it was 48-7 by Drew Brees and the Saints when that offense was clicking like a fine-tuned machine. Now, the Saints offense hasn't been quite that explosive down the stretch. Um, Teams kind of caught up with them. They played some really good defenses, et cetera, et cetera. But last time the Eagles were there, they got blown out of the building. Now... The Eagles go back. They go back with Nick Foles, who obviously, as we know, carried them last year, won Super Bowl MVP. Okay. My question here is, what if Nick Foles goes down there and wins this weekend? And even more so, what if he wins and plays really well, right? As we know that he's capable of doing on the biggest stage. He proved that to us. Then what? We have another situation where you would have a huge quarterback controversy. The Eagles will tell you, Wentz is our guy, he's our guy of the future, etc., etc. But I'm looking at this, what if 
Nick Foles goes down there and wins, then he's got a legitimate chance of beating either Dallas or the LA Rams. They beat the Rams there with Nick Foles uh, earlier this season, a few weeks ago. Dallas is a division rival. You never know what can happen with those type of games. And you, you just have to wonder if Nick Foles goes on another magical run. Now, this could very easily be moved if they get beat this weekend, especially if they get blown out. But what if? Just what if? We, we like the what ifs in sports, right? Wouldn't that make for an amazing story? Nick Foles on another run, wins another championship, maybe not Super Bowl MVP, but they often give it to a quarterback who plays well. So let's just say hypothetically that happens. Then what do you do? First of all, Carson Wentz is clearly injury prone. He's been injured constantly since college. Um, who's to say that he's going to be able to stay healthy in this league? What do you really do? Uh, that's just, that's a question I have no answer to. Do you wait for Carson Wentz to get healthy and then trade him for a million and one picks and players for a haul, I guess you should say? Do you trade Nick Foles for a haul? Who's going to give you what? What would be the best move for you if Nick Foles goes on a run? Again, this could all be moved if Nick Foles loses this weekend or goes down to New Orleans and lays an egg. But this should be very interesting. Um, Another neat side note to the, uh, the upcoming uh, game this weekend with the Saints and the Eagles. Apparently, it's been reported that uh, Saints coach Sean Payton walked into the locker room with the Lombardi Trophy and $225,000 in cash, which would be the bonus that the Saints players would get for winning the Super Bowl. And he said to his team, you want this? Win three more effing games. How's that for motivation, huh? Finally, uh, Dallas and Seattle. I I tell you what, I'm not in any way a Cowboys fan, but they are really playing well right now. all the Dak Prescott people, yes, he made a great play uh, running and picking up that third and long and getting into the end zone and pretty much sealed the game last week. I get it. But to me, Dak is still a glorified game manager. Yes, he can make some throws. Yes, he's efficient. Um, he doesn't turn over a whole lot. He completes at a high percentage. But I just don't see for me what I need to see for him to be that elite level quarterback, get paid elite level money. I mean, obviously, you know, if they go on to win a Super Bowl and he plays well, I get it. You got to pay the guy. But for me, he's not that guy. Now, granted, Wearing that star on the side of your helmet, being the Cowboys quarterback, goes a long way towards getting you gravitas in terms of extra attention at your position. And even if you're not that great, if you play well, there's just something extra for being the Cowboys quarterback. It's like being a superstar in the New York Knicks or really any New York franchise. You know, when you're in those type of markets for those type of teams, if you're good, you get bumped up to great, right? If you're great, you get bumped up to legendary. It's just one of those things that comes with being in those markets. So for me, Dak Prescott is not the key. It's Ezekiel Elliott. When Ezekiel Elliott gets the touches, the Cowboys do not lose. When Ezekiel Elliott runs uh, for over um, 120 yards, the Cowboys just don't lose. It's a very simple formula. Get Ezekiel Elliott the rock. I said this last week. Get Ezekiel Elliott the rock. Let's try this one more time. Get Zeke the rock. And the Cowboys win. Very simple. They're playing outstanding defense. They're running the football well. And Dak 
you know, will make just enough plays and generally not put you in a situation to lose. He generally won't hurt his team, but for me, he's not usually going to be the reason that they win. So get Zeke the Rock pounded and continue to play outstanding defense. And really, in that last game against Seattle, the defense played out of this world. Uh, the Seahawks came in being the top rushing offense in the league on the season, and the Dallas defense held them to 73 rushing yards. That's crazy. And really, if not for, I think, a 26-yard scamper in the third quarter, that would have been a lot worse. So you got to give a lot of kudos to what Dallas is doing defensively. They're young, they're athletic, they're fast. Their guys fly all over the field and get to the football. Um, Jalen Smith, University of Notre Dame again. We had to do that again. And... Um, Leighton Vanderesh, the tackling Dutchman, those guys are probably uh, the top tackling linebacker duo um, in the entire NFL, and they're really playing extremely well. They also get pressure up, forward, up front with the front four with Demarcus Lawrence, um, who really attacks quarterback well. I feel like for me, I keep saying it, in the NFL playoffs, coaches will take away what you do best. You have to be able to either adapt or be better in your execution and your physicality than the defensive coaches are in order to continue to do what you do, right? And that's not an easy thing. Um, they have time to prepare for you. They watch a lot of film. This is the NFL. The coaches are the best of the best, right? So they take away what you do. And if you can't make the adjustment, you will lose. That's exactly what happened against the Cowboys. The Seattle run game was stopped and they looked completely unprepared to do anything else if that happened. Now, don't get me wrong. The Seahawks had an unexpectedly great season, uh, especially uh, by uh, quarterback Russell Wilson, who had 35 touchdowns on the year against only seven interceptions and 66% completions. Now, he didn't have uh, tremendous eye-popping numbers in the past game. I think he had less than 3,500 passing yards, which isn't great. But with that said, if you have the number one rush offense, that's where your focus is. So um, you're not necessarily going to put up the eye-popping stats through the air, right? But again, Russell Wilson had a tremendous season. Uh, 35 to 7 is just, that's, that's an amazing uh, touchdown-interception ratio. Uh, exceptionally efficient. But when it came down to making the adjustment, whether it was Russell Wilson making adjustments at the line on the play call or whether it's uh, uh, Pete Carroll um, in, on the coaching side of it, the Seahawks just didn't do that. And um, again, that's kudos to the Cowboys defense and that got them to win if you, if you want to be real about it. Finally, I want to get into some coaching moves on the NFL front. And um, the first one to me, I got to talk about this, is the hiring of former uh, Texas Tech University head coach and extremely brief uh, University of Southern California offensive coordinator, Cliff Kingsbury. So how I feel about the Arizona Cardinals hiring Cliff Kingsbury comes down to one word, ridiculous. I understand an NFL job does not come up often. And if you get the opportunity to be an NFL head coach, you jump on it. So I'm not blaming Cliff Kingsbury. But let me say this again. If you're the Arizona Cardinals, that was absolutely ridiculous. You look at Cliff Kingsbury. We know that he was an absolutely elite passer on the collegiate level, playing at his, at Texas Tech uh, under head coach Mike Leach, the innovator of the air raid offense. Uh, Kingsbury set numerous passing records during his time there. 
ended up becoming the uh, head coach there a few years after he was done playing, after being an OC for uh, Kevin Sumlin at Texas A&M. So we look at that, and Kingsbury gets a job, and this guy is sub-500 at Texas Tech in the Big 12. This is a conference that plays no defense and really has one team every year, Oklahoma. Some years, Texas may be better than others, but really the Big 12 is a one-team race. Oklahoma, you are a Power 5 conference in the state of Texas in a conference that plays no defense. You have lots of players to choose from and to recruit, and you're a sub-500. And you get an NFL job? With no NFL coaching experience, you haven't been a position coach, you haven't been a coordinator, you haven't been a head coach, and you get an NFL coaching job. This is absolutely ridiculous. I'm happy for Cliff Kingsbury, for him, but the Cardinals should be ashamed of themselves. Um, Kingsbury clearly is knows nothing about defense. That's been reported, and you can see that from the teams he's coached. He's going to have to do a, a good job of hiring a strong offensive excuse me, hiring a strong defensive coordinator to really work the other side of the ball as he doesn't know anything about it. And I think he's probably going to find out, a la Steve Spurrier, that yes, there are coaches in the league, some are great at defense, some are great at offense, but the really good ones know something about both, no matter what their forte is, right? I think here, the Cardinals are simply drinking the LA Rams Kool-Aid and looking for the next Sean McVay. What they're not realizing that for the most part, Sean McVay is an outlier and he inherited a roster full of a tremendous amount of talent due to the Rams having been bad for years under Jeff Fisher. I'm not sure why it's so hard to see simple things like this, but the NFL is a copycat league. And honestly, it seems like a lot of these execs and coaches don't do a lot of thinking outside the box. They just say, this worked over here, I'm going to try it over here. They're not looking into context and what made those things work over there. The other interesting thing is young quarterback Josh Rosen, high draft pick, that's a pro-style quarterback. He's not an air raid QB, so I'm wondering, is Kingsbury going to attempt to put a square peg in a round hole and try to force Rosen into his air raid system? Or is he going to try to do a better job of tailoring his system to what Rosen does well in order to make that work? Because that's what the really good coaches do. The really good coaches don't say, this is my system, you're going to do it no matter what. No, they're going to take a look at their personnel and tailor their system to make it work based on who they have. That's another question. In in college, you're able to recruit all the players that you feel are best for your system you don't get to recruit here. You work with the players that you have. Um, you probably don't even get say in the draft because you have GMs, you have uh, president of football operations, et cetera, et cetera. This is going to be really neat to watch. And honestly, I don't have high hopes for this. Uh, Larry Fitzgerald is an elder statesman. He's still productive, but clearly past his prime. There's not a lot of great weapons on the outside. I'm not sure what they're going to do also. Josh Rosen uh, took a lot of punishment this past season. The offensive line is not great. Uh, Kingsbury in his air raid system has a lot of open sets, so there's minimal protection. That's not going to work on the NFL level. They're going to come kill your quarterback. I'm really not sure 
what this guy is going to do, what type of adjustments he's going to make. I truly hope that he's watching a lot of film, and I truly hope that his ego won't get in the way and that he'll be able to make some adjustments in order to be successful, even at a moderate level. Another interesting point to this Kingsbury hire, I'm going to come out and say it, Arizona's previous coach, Wilkes, he absolutely got the shaft. This was a team beset by injuries this last season, and you fire the guy after one year. You hire him and you fire him after one year. I'm going to say something here that might not be popular, but as a black head coach, I truly believe that if Steve Wilkes was a white coach, he would have at least gotten another year. He would not have gotten cut, excuse me, fired after only one season. It was ridiculous. They looked for a scapegoat and they got him out of there and they hired the guy that I guess they want. I don't know if they wanted him all along, but they hired the guy they wanted. And now let's see how that works out. Another uh, interesting coaching hire, one that I actually like, is Bruce Arians uh, going to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Now, normally... I feel bad for quarterbacks who have a lot of coaching turnover early in their career. You can see that being the case with Jameis Winston. But in this case, Bruce Arians, I think, may be a great fit. Bruce Arians is is an experienced, uh, tough-minded coach who's had a lot of success wherever he's gone and has a lot of success with quarterbacks. This is a guy who's coached Peyton Manning, who's coached Ben Roethlisberger, who's coached Andrew Luck, who's uh, coached Carson Palmer, and has really had a high level of success with all of those quarterbacks. So I think um, if Jameis is really uh, willing to listen and and uh, pay attention, take the tutelage, and uh, really be cognizant of his level of maturity off the field and just focus on becoming a great quarterback, this is a guy who's still ultra talented. Getting this level of coaching, I think, is really going to be good for him, and I think he's going to be successful. Now, with that said, again, very tough division. You've got Cam in Carolina. Carolina's always good defensively. Uh, Cam Newton should be healthy next year, so they should be a better team again. Um, Jameis' former head coach, Dirk Cutter, has gone up to Atlanta to take the OC job and work with Matt Ryan. And, of course, you've got Sean Payton and Drew Brees in uh, New Orleans. So always a tough division to play in. Arians uh, should definitely have his hands full. But his last coaching assignment in Arizona, he's also was uh, in a situation for a few years where the NFC West was extremely tough, dealing with the Seahawks, dealing with the Niners, you know. So um, it it definitely, um, I think, is a good fit. I also like the fact that he's reunited with Todd Bowles as his defensive coordinator uh, to get the best out of Gerald McCoy and that defensive unit, which at one point was uh, fairly stout, but has kind of fallen off. So this, I think, is is a very good coaching situation for the Bucs, and I'm looking forward to see what they do with it. New Packers head coach is Matt LaFleur. I don't know what they're going for there. I really don't know what they're going for. Again, copycat league situation where this is a guy who had one season as an offensive coordinator for Sean McVay. And uh, last season, he was the OC for the Titans. He was the OC for the Titans last year, and they were pedestrian at best offensively. 
Now, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt, saying that they didn't have great QB play. Uh, Mariota is not a throw-it-around-the-yard guy. He's also a guy that gets injured relatively often. Also, the Titans didn't have a lot of weapons offensively. Uh, even still, I just – I don't know <sighs> – I think, again, they're looking for that connection to Sean McVay, and they're assuming that, you know, he is going to be innovative offensively. He has learned from Sean McVay. I don't see great things from the Packers. They don't have a lot of great weapons offensively. Obviously, they have an all-timer at quarterback and Aaron Rodgers. We are just going to have to wait and see what they do. But I don't have a whole lot of uh, faith that this is going to be an outstanding maneuver in terms of on-field success uh, in Green Bay. So, we wait and see. And finally, Adam Gase reportedly to the Jets. I'm not even going to say anything other than he knows the division, but he hasn't done anything to prove to me he can be a good head coach. The last thing he did, I guess, really well was to be uh, offensive coordinator with Jay Cutler when Jay Cutler had one of his best seasons in Chicago. Other than that, same thing, looking for the young guy, offensive-minded, to tutor a young, promising quarterback. It, the Jets don't have a lot of weapons offensively. Uh, we're going to see what Gaze can do schematically, but there's nothing that he's done thus far as a head coach that is going to make me feel like they're going to be any threat whatsoever to anyone in the NFL, furthermore, the New England Patriots in the AFC East. So I'm not... I guess I've touched on it numerous times throughout um, this uh, NFL segment, but we see a theme here. The mindset among NFL GMs and, and uh, is to get young, supposedly innovative offensive minds that are quarterback friendly to be a head coach in an increasingly offensive league. The problem is only a few teams are really capable of winning, whether it be um, uh, in the front office, uh, organizationally, whether it be having the quarterback, having the skill position players, having the defensive players. Only a few teams are really capable of winning, but owners are okay with that because of revenue sharing. And offensive football sells tickets and puts butts in the seats, and that makes a lot of money. So at the end of the day, even if the team doesn't win, the owner still does. Narratives are funny. You know that my goal, or you should by now, is to dispel untrue narratives as much as humanly possible. I can't stand narratives. I can't stand the fact that they're usually lies and usually manipulated storylines and manipulated stats. So I go all out to break those apart. Let me give you some examples. LeBron is better than MJ. Uh-huh. James Harden is the greatest offensive player ever. Mm-hmm. Really? This is the best era ever of NBA basketball. What? Okay. Yada, yada, yada. So anyway, let's start with this. Paul George is supposed to be having the best statistical season of his life. He really is having a very good season. Uh, he's helping the OKC Thunder to have a great season as well. Um, oddly enough, 
uh, Russell Westbrook, his numbers are actually a little down. I know you're saying right now, what? He's averaging another triple-double. Yeah, I understand he's averaging another triple-double. But let's look a little further at Russell Westbrook's numbers. He's never been a high-percentage shooter, but he's only at 42% from the field. Now, for a guy that gets to the basket as much as he does, gets as many layups and gets as many dunks, it doesn't really make sense that he'd have a field goal percentage in the low 40s. Even worse than that, he's shooting 23% from three-point range. 23%. Now, if you're a shooter, I get the whole shooter's memory thing, uh, short memory, keep shooting, shoot yourself out of the slump. The difference is Westbrook can at times shoot, but he's not a shooter. He's never been a shooter, but he's still taking almost five threes a game. Yo, Russ, you're not making the threes. Stop shooting them. Seems like a pretty simple concept, right? Even more so, not just with the long jump shots, the threes, his shooting touch seems to have completely deserted him. He's shooting a career low 62% from the free throw line. We have no idea what that's about, but something definitely isn't right here. Now, Russell Westbrook has never been a particularly efficient player, but he's also averaging 4.8 turnovers a game. Think about how many more games you could win if you didn't turn the ball over so much. Maybe try to get that down around three. Uh, most of the elite players who have the ball in their hands a lot are around three, three and a half. I'm not a big proponent of that, but if you can get that down there, then it really would help your team a lot and probably boost your own numbers. Although, as a side, it's always been my opinion that for every turnover, you should be docked an assist. We would see a lot of dudes take much better care of the basketball, I can assure you that. Especially a guy like Westbrook who seems to live for those triple doubles. But I'm gonna leave the old triple double thing alone, especially the fact that he's been admittedly stealing rebounds. But that's for another day. Anyway, um, Russell Westbrook definitely not having a great season at all, which is probably what pushes the narrative that Paul George is having a great season. It's been said, reported in multiple outlets, that he's having the best statistical season of his career. So what did I do? Of course, I checked that out, right? Paul George is averaging career highs in points at 23, uh, excuse me, 24.3 points per game. Career highs in rebounds at 7.9, so just a tick under 8. And assists 4.4, which is a pretty cool thing because Russell Westbrook would probably die than have anyone else on the team get any assists because, you know, like we said, he loves his triple-doubles. But anyway, uh, Paul George is averaging career numbers in the three major counting categories. So that's awesome, PG-13. Absolutely. Big up for that. He's also averaging a career high in turnovers. And that's three per game. And I find that interesting because when he was in Indiana, he would have been the primary ball handler in the majority of cases, uh, primary initiator of offense and the dude who had the highest usage rate on the roster. So the fact that he's averaging a career high in turnovers while not being that guy in OKC, interesting. I'm not sure exactly what to make of that or what might be the cause of it, but it is something to pay attention to. Also, He's shooting his second worst field goal percentage in his career at only 41.5%. Hmm. 
He's also shooting his third worst three-point percentage at only 35%. So I'm wondering if critical categories such as turnovers, field goal percentage, and three-point field goal percentage are some of the worst of his career, how can we possibly say that Paul George is having the best statistical season of his life? You see what I mean about narratives? This just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Maybe they are using some different new advanced metric to make that point and hold that stance. Uh, It could be that. Based on the standard numbers, I don't agree with it. Although, as I said, uh, he's doing that with Russell Westbrook and Oklahoma City is playing well. And the way they're playing, they they could probably be uh, a tough first round matchup for whoever they play in the playoffs in the West. So give credit where credit is due. He is having a good season. But to say best statistical season of his life, I think you probably got to balance out the points, rebound, and assist numbers, which were all career highs, with the turnovers, shooting percentage, and three-point shooting percentage. Kind of, you know, look at that more fairly. Because I don't think that I would say this is the best statistical season of his life. But it is what it is. And uh, maybe brighter people than me are coming up with that. And again, maybe they have some metric that is accounting for things that I'm not. Anyways, I'm just checking out the standings. And I see the Warriors, the defending champions at number two in the West. They are just one game out of first sitting behind the uh, surprising Denver Nuggets. So here's what's interesting about that for me. All season, for this or that reason, we've been worried about Golden State. We've been worried about the champs. Katie and Draymond are going at it. Could that possibly derail the Golden State Warriors season? I get it. That was that was a big story. Caused a firestorm. There was uh, some major friction there. Um, between the two, following that blow up, uh, they weren't playing particularly well. So be it. Uh, Stephen Curry was hurt. Um, Stephen Curry, is he the best player on the team or the most important on the team? What's the difference between best and most important? Can they win without Steph? They're dropping a lot of games in the West. It's hard in the West. It's hard in the West. Yes, it's hard in the West. You drop games a lot of times. Just a couple of games can take you from, you know, first to last in terms of playoff seedings. First to eighth, that is. But Golden State is a different team. They have championship medal. They have championship talent. They have championship experience. Klay Thompson is in one of the worst shooting slumps of his career. He's not shooting well. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Klay Thompson's not shooting well. Yes, that's true. But a shooter of that caliber will break out of a slump. They're not going to stay in that slump forever. So my answer to all those things is blah, blah, blah. The Warriors are starting to get it back together now. And the biggest factor this season for them in my opinion, hasn't even come into play yet. So Boogie Cousins is slated to return to the court within the next couple weeks here. And reportedly, he wanted to return since last November, but he's been brought along more slowly by the Warriors training staff. The Warriors know that the regular season is a long grind, and what's most important for them is just getting a moderately decent seed, you know, somewhere probably in the top three and being at optimal health so that they can really, you know, uh, make it happen, turn it on, and do what they got to do in the playoffs. Most of the time, the great championship teams are not teams that rely on just turning it on. 
because you have to play a certain way or you should need to play a certain way throughout the season to develop the championship habits. But they're they're different. Like I said, they're so talented and they're so experienced and they know what it takes. They really feel like they can turn it on. Um, And the past has proven that they're capable of doing that. The thing about Boogie is his presence brings an entirely new element to the Warriors that their opponents haven't really had to deal with previously, right? So they've already won three championships in four years. And and they've had, you know, solid bigs before, but they've never had a big of this caliber, right? This guy, Boogie, he can score in the post. He can shoot. He can defend the rim and he can pass. He has a very varied skill set that they've never had on one of their big men before. Now, that's not to say that when Boogie comes back, even if he gets to full strength, the Warriors are going to change their whole philosophy, dump it into the post, and just sit around the arc waiting for kickouts. Because that's not what they do, right? They do a lot of uh, tremendous movement, cutting, screening for one another, uh, getting good shots. And then, of course, you have two of the all-time shot makers off the dribble in Kevin Durant and Stephen Curry. So that's not at all what they do. But having that legitimate threat that can score down low on almost any possession and can step out and knock down the three, well, that's a dangerous, dangerous element that we haven't seen before from this team. Certainly not this iteration of this team, right? Uh, This is really an extremely dangerous weapon for a team that, you know, is already North Korea when it comes in capability to go nuclear. So watching, waiting and watching for Boogie to see what happens when he gets on the court, you know, gets back in game shape, because you can do all the practice you can, but game shape is a totally different thing. But waiting for him to really get in game shape and and get in that in-game flow with his teammates is something I'm very anxious about. And I feel like uh, he can be just an extremely dangerous addition to this team. So watch out when Boogie gets back. Also, there was a 14-game stretch during the season during which Klay Thompson shot 30% from three. Yeah, I said that. Listen to that again. Klay Thompson, you know, arguably a top five pure shooter of all time, shot 30% from three and 40% from the field. That doesn't sound like Klay, but... He seems to be right back to his old self, averaging 23 points per game on 52% from the field and 57% from three over his last four games. It looks like he got that touchback. And as we mentioned, guys who can go nuclear, Clay Thompson, as we've seen on multiple occasions, can get as hot as hot can get when he's going. Uh, we already know that he's, he holds the NBA record for points in a quarter and threes in a quarter and threes in a single game. This guy, when he gets going, there's really no stopping him. You know, hand in his face, try to run him off the three-point line, whatever it is, he is going to burn you. So all these elements that we saw that we were concerning ourselves with earlier in the season or maybe more accurately trying to find storylines with are becoming irrelevant very rapidly. Also, Steph Curry, we know that he spent some time uh, injured earlier in the year, and he's right back to himself. You know, he has been pretty much all year long, averaging 29 a game, 
um, 44% from three and 48% from the field. I mean, what do we have to say about Steph Curry at this point? Clearly, he's one of the all-time shooters. I personally feel he's the greatest shooter of all time based on his ability to shoot from probably the greatest range we've ever seen, both off the dribble and in the catch-and-shoot game, uh, whether that's standstill catch-and-shoot or catch-and-shoot off movement. We have never in the history of the NBA seen anything like him. Now, of course, we have to take into account the way defense is played nowadays, but regardless of that, Stephen Curry is clearly the best shooter of all time. That is what it is. Then you have KD. KD just being KD, easily averaging 27 points a game, seven rebounds a game, four assists per game, 49% from the field, 38% on threes. I mean, he's just being KD, and for the most part, he's not even taking over yet. Like, the way this guy scores just looks so effortless. It's rare that we've seen anybody in history score in a way that just looks so smooth and so easy. Probably uh, George Gervin maybe is, is one of the best uh, the best comparisons to the way KD plays the game and the way he scores. Just just silky smooth and easy. You know, he gets he gets to the basket. He pulls up in the mid-range, absolutely deadly in the mid-range. Uh, shoots three extremely well. KD is easily um, one of the best small forwards we've seen. And as testament to that, whenever he gets the matchup against LeBron James on the big stage, well, we've seen what he can do. I'm not even going to get into that. At the end of the day, when this Golden State team is clicking, there's absolutely nothing you can do. And that just shows how good they are. And the scary part is it's not even the all-star break yet. Um, the assumptions of them winning a third straight title were probably pretty well founded after all, right? We were worried about this, that. And uh, it looks like they're kind of getting into form, getting into the flow. And like I mentioned earlier, when Boogie gets there, that's just another nuclear weapon. And uh, they may really be one of the most unstoppable teams come playoff time in NBA history. I figure it's just pretty hard to stay focused with this much continual success. And as we mentioned, continual success, quick switch over to the NFL here. That should just tell you how great Brady and Belichick are year after year after year of continual success. It's not easy to do it on any level of sports. Before we get on out of here, you know what time it is. It's time for the Bruce Breakdown. When I was a kid, my mom once told me, if you have a problem with someone, maybe it's a personality difference. But if you have a problem with everyone, look in the mirror. Jimmy Butler, the newest acquisition to the 76ers, has been a great addition to the team. The team is playing better. They're utilizing his skill set. They're hardly losing since he's gotten there. It's really been a great addition in terms of personnel and production on paper. All that said, rumors are beginning to surface of Jimmy Butler clashing with teammates and coaching staff. I was a proponent of Jimmy Butler. I think his talent, his grit, 
and his hard work is undeniable. The chip that came on his shoulder from everything that he's been through in life, being drafted lower, and having to work for everything he's gotten, every penny, every dollar, and every position on every team has left him with an overall aggressive, almost mean streak. And with all that, it's made him abrasive to a lot of other teammates whom he may feel don't work as hard as he does. Maybe they didn't have to work quite as hard as he has to achieve what he has in life. All that said, it's been reported that Jimmy Butler bumped heads with teammates in Chicago. It's been reported that Jimmy Butler bumped heads with teammates and coaches on the Olympic team. It's been reported that Jimmy Butler clearly bumped heads with teammates and uh, members of the front office in Minnesota and forcing his way out of there to get a trade to his new home, the Philadelphia 76ers. And it's already been reported that he's bumping heads with uh, coaching and teammates on this squad. Now I get it, Jimmy. Everything you've been through in life, your hard nose, your competitiveness, all of that has made you the player that you are. But everyone doesn't have the same life experience as you. Everyone isn't going to be driven to work the same way you are because they haven't had to their entire lives the way you have. Everyone doesn't see the world the way you do. Everyone doesn't see competition the way you do. And I get it. Everyone not seeing competition the way you do is definitely a letdown for today's NBA. But the fact is, it is what it is. And I know that you're trying to push your teammates and push your coaches to maximize themselves and get every drop out of themselves the way you do. But everyone just isn't going to see it that way. And unfortunately, you have to accept that. That is what it is. So like my mom told me, if you bump heads or have a personality problem with one person, Jimmy, that's a one-on-one thing. But if you have it with everybody, Jimmy, that's you. You definitely need to back up take a look in the mirror and work out whatever's going on here you need to come to terms with the fact that everyone just doesn't see it how you do everyone's not as driven as you are and everyone's not going to work the way you do that's it so jimmy wishing you all the success in the world in philly because guys like you are what makes sports great but at the same time you play a team game and you have to learn to ingratiate yourself and play nice with others for the best success to happen see the Golden State Warriors. And that's all I got today on the Bruce Breakdown. Remember, if you liked what you heard, come back and listen again. I'll be back with you next week. Have some more good NFL wrap-up. If anything interesting out of college pops up this early in the offseason, I'll definitely mention it. We're going to start getting more and more into the NBA now that the NFL is just about over. And we're going to begin into the meat of the NBA season before the playoffs. If you want to uh, hit me up, just follow me on Twitter at Mr. Many Facts. That's at Mr. Many Facts. Or you can follow me on Instagram at The Format Podcast at The Format Podcast. You can let me know where I was wrong. You can let me know where I was right. You can let me know if you think I forgot something or if you just want to shoot the breeze with me. So don't forget me. You can hit me up on Twitter or Instagram. But most importantly, keep continuing to listen. If you like what you're hearing, make sure you go ahead and share the show with uh, friends, co-workers, whoever, family, whoever think might uh, be interested. 
If you're listening on uh, an Apple platform, iTunes, go ahead, please rate and review. Go ahead, give us those five stars and uh, say something nice about us, all right? We're trying to keep this thing going and uh, trying to give you the content that you're looking for. Definitely trying to give you that good sports talk and give you my takes on how I see things, all right? So uh, that's going to be it for me for this week's episode of The Format. I'm out.